the same technology you and I are using to have an amazing conversation about innovation and uh, how we can change the world, uh, people are using to traffic children. And so what it means is that uh, every, every company that facilitates communication between human beings that are transferring data uh, needs to be more diligent about protecting the people that are actually using their platforms. And so... Hey, Chris, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Good. I'm really excited to be here, excited for this conversation. Yeah, I mean, right off the bat, you taught me something before we started about uh, Minnesota being uh, further north than Toronto. And I literally had to check a map and learn about this. So uh, whereabouts Minnesota are you, are you, are you calling from? I'm in, uh, I'm in Minneapolis. So uh, I, I, I grew up here. I've lived all around the states, uh, but with COVID resettled here because it just made sense to be close to family. <laughs> Remind me again, Minnesota is where uh, Fargo uh, is, is from, right? The, the show? Yep. And, uh, and my sister and my mom both have that accent. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Uh, how come you lost it? It's like, uh, it's not a native, it's uh you're not native there or? Well, no, I, I think I grew up in the middle of the city. So less rural. Uh, it's more okay. of a rural thing. And my mom grew up on a farm north of this, north of Minneapolis. And, uh, and, and, uh, my dad does, it doesn't have the accent. It just happened. Just I just happened not to ca not to catch it. Now every so often, my O's come out. But you're Canadian. You understand how that goes. Out about <laughs> in the boot is all one word. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, after watching Fargo, I'm like, wait, this is the accent that the Americans accuse us of having. What I was a little confused there, right? Where that's uh, coming from? But uh, is it, does it really get cold as cold as Fargo makes it seem? Oh yeah, I mean it. It gets really bitter here. I mean it's not it's not Calgary, but it's we, we essentially get their seconds. Their their cold cold air comes flying over the plains, and uh, you know we, we often have two or three weeks uh, where we're below zero Fahrenheit, so you know negative thirties in uh, Celsius, and it's it's pretty bitter. But the dirty little secret is we have attached garage, garages to heated cars to covered garages. If you don't have to go outside, you just don't go outside in those days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Um, one of the interesting things is uh, I've learned about is uh, in, in Russia, uh, Russia has like 60 million people in the Arctic Circle. Like, whereas Canada, you know, we well, we also have Arctic area, but, uh, you know, we are less than like, I think like 200,000 uh, people living within our Arctic Circle. And, you know, and... It's how 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 people like you know live up there. Like we think in North America that you know the cold is impossible. We're like you know who, what's up there? There's nothing there. But in Russia, now this, that side of the world, they live in the Arctic Circle. There's entire cities, like metropolitan cities, uh, which are interconnected underground, where you can just like walk from building to building and and continue to uh, continue to operate. And uh, you know, talking about that, I think like. A lot of the future is like start thinking about like how we can you know survive in these more extreme environments because mm -hmm. everything's like shifting global warming and climate change and things like that. Has it hit you guys hard there? Well, if anything, um, maybe the fellow Minnesotans are cheering on uh, global warming because it's it's getting more hospitable, uh, more ice. We get more <laughs> ice than snow, and so it, that's the only disappointing thing is we get ice storms versus um, good old fashioned snowstorms. But, uh, but, mm. uh, you know, we already have our like downtown areas connected through what we call skyway system. I believe you call them 10 meters up there. Um, but, uh, you know, so we can go like from one edge of downtown to the other, all on the second floor of the of buildings and they're all interconnected. Our universities all have tunnels. Like we, we've already adapted to the cold. Uh, it, it, it mm. is, uh, I, I think it's actually really interesting you bring that up because, as environmental changes hit us faster, it's going to have a major impact on uh, on infrastructure. And, you know, humans have been adapting to uh, bad weather for a long time. It'll be interesting to see how it impacts architecture moving forward. Yeah. And, uh, you know, 
tying the tying this all in um, with uh, with the conversation today is that uh, climate change is expected to displace a billion people over the next ten years. Like this is this decade. Uh, most uh, most of them are going to be from the core um, uh, um, South Pacific area. You know, everything from Bangladesh to the Philippines to the Maldives, like uh, that entire region. And and you know, as uh, as the seawater rises, especially because the flood, these are flood areas. More a lot of coastal areas are going to be flooded and taken away. Same time, that region is running out of fresh water. Uh, yes. You know, uh, those people are already uh, experiencing uh, per capita the least amount of freshwater supply, and that's rapidly diminishing. Mostly because uh, uh, the Himalayan mountain chains are not getting enough uh, uh, snow cover, so the slow melts are reducing each year. That feeds all the river systems, so it's feeding. So it's it's like a catastrophic cascade down the line. And um, that entire region is being uh, affected by this. And Canada, you know, um, I have reason to believe uh, I've seen that is that we have a very aggressive immigration policy coming for the next, uh, next, uh, next few decades. We're expected to bring in at least 400,000 people per, per year uh, into the country, which is high for, you know, our population size. Mm-hmm. And part of this is, you know, a Canadian, in, in, a Canadian in, uh, for uh, immigration, you know, we talk about, you know, the refugee system and we have like, you know, we're known worldwide for like bringing in immigrants, things like that. But the immigrants that come in here actually are very high level, right? They already have families. They're usually mm-hmm. from middle class families. They have some kind of proven work history. We're actually acquiring the middle class from these, uh, from like almost failed nations and failed states and things like that. So, for us, as immigration policy-wise, it's like a shopping spree of, of of talent that's becoming liquidated in these countries. But there's a lot of people going to be left behind as yeah. conditions worsen, uh, which ties into the kind of work that you're doing with uh, human trafficking and uh, those kind of conditions. Uh, I think we're, we're it's crazy that in the time of like we're launching satellites and uh, we have supercomputers in our phones, we're talking about like an ancient system of humans being capitalized. Um, you know, for, you know, uh, that, uh, that, that seems kind of like almost, uh, morbid to think about that we live in a society right. where that allows both to exist. Um, well, I, I, I want to dive into you, your thoughts. Yeah. You know, I think human trafficking is a toxic waste of capitalism. Um, and it's not like slavery was created with capitalism, but it's definitely, uh, when you have a system built on labor, uh, there are going to be people that exploit that. And so, I mean, just on some numbers, you know, we're talking 40 plus million people are currently enslaved around the world in modern slavery. It's more people that have been enslaved in any point in human history. Uh, and, you know, some of that is, you know, uh, you know, kind of what you think of in, in uh, certain industries or agriculture in particular around the globe West uh, in uh Western Africa, that's a huge problem in Western Africa and cotton fields in, in uh, Central Asia. Uh, but there's also a huge amount in, uh, in sexual trafficking. And, uh, you know, that, that's really way, where we focus with Krunam because, you know, uh, as, and as we become more interconnected, the face of that is changing. For years, it would be, you know, you, you'd uh, trick someone into um, – and uh, often, you know, you're often tricking someone who is at risk into uh, into into uh, a situation like the red light district in Amsterdam or fill in the blank. Um, but your demand was limited to the people that were nearby you. But what's happened, um, particularly in the age of COVID, is that this has expanded uh, globally. And, uh, and the same technology you and I are using to have an amazing conversation about innovation and uh, how we can change the world, uh, people are using to traffic children. And so what it means is that uh, every, every company that facilitates communication between human beings that are transferring data uh, needs to be more diligent about protecting the people that are actually using their platforms. And so that's really why we were founded because we think that's the, really the next main phase of, uh, of kind of internet, uh, internet and, uh, uh, evolution is refining it to the point where it becomes a hospitable place for more people. I think if anything, hyperconnection was, there was a euphoria of hyperconnection and then we saw it, spin out of control, whether that's with the Rohingya or uh, the uh, politics in the United States. You saw hyperconnection 
misfiring because our brains aren't built for this kind of hyperconnection. And so we're going to have to build both societal and technological solutions to make it a more hospitable place for more people. And, you know, just like the billion people that are going to be left behind uh, with environmental change, there are going to be billions of people left behind if we leave the current um, spot in place uh, online. And that's people that can't afford uh, to pay for end-to-end encryption and have to rely on ad-based systems. That's uh, people that uh, simply don't have the wherewithal to uh, to police their own image being or data being misused across the internet. And so, you know, on, on some levels, it's also an extension of privilege. Uh, and so, what we want to do is is work with these uh, major tech companies all around the globe to build a system that is more equitable because we think actually not only is it going to help children uh, and uh, other people that are underrepresented uh, around the world, it also will drive their business forward because it'll be a, a more hospitable place to be on a Facebook, to be on a Twitter. Uh, because right now, if you're, you know, you and I are men. It's a we have a very different experience on social media than than our our female colleagues do. Uh, the vitriol that I get as a six foot four male with you know a deep voice very different than a female with my exact same background. And so we need to you know that that's what governance and and data can do is we can level the playing field and allow that communication to be uh, to be more even. Hmm. So. I mean, there. I mean, there's a few um, open concepts in in in, in um, uh, to this, right? And I mean, let's start with with uh, you know the theme of the podcast is more technology themed, and how yeah. technology is being utilized here, uh, either to fight this, uh, you know, to, to fight the scourge or to enable it. Um, you know, we know that um, there are uh, cartels in uh, Latin America that own their own cell towers, so they have mm-hmm. their own cell network, encrypted and secure, so their own communication systems uh, and they are lev- uh, they're leveraging this amount of sophistication to run uh, criminal empires literally right. and you know when we think about like a crime ha- happening you think about that kind of level of sophistication but there's also like low level people that are just utilizing exploiting tools that are openly available to utilize that right how in a world where you know we have like these giant uh, uh, you know uh, industrial complex in 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 in, in um, you know, in utilizing technology, uh, are, are, do we not have tools to combat from this side, right? Like, what is the dichotomy here? I, I was listening to, I think, uh, Ashton Kutcher, who uh, on the side has uh, his own uh, cybersecurity fund that, you know, also helps with uh, with uh, human trafficking problems as well, explain the deficit in amount of resources that law enforcement and and security personnel have when, in, when in dealing with the criminal side, right? There's a huge technical debt it's almost unilaterally it, uh, mm-hmm. a difference uh, being deployed in um, in how we fight, um, you know, uh, modern crime versus how modern crime is committed. Yeah. Um, what, are you, what are your thoughts here? Well, you know, th- that that's big. So let let me collect myself a little bit. What one thing is that's where that's where actually we and our technology comes out of. Uh, Krunam is is bringing forward a technology that was created to help law enforcement. So let, let, let me back up and introduce Krunam just for a second for your listeners. Um, we are a, uh, a technology company that is focused on stopping the spread of child sexual assault material. You'll, you'll hear me use the phrase CSAM. Uh, most people like, uh, you know, a lot of times you'll hear the word chi- uh, child pornography. Pornography implies consent. And so that's why we use the phrase CSAM. And, but, uh, and so our technology was created originally to solve a problem, as most technologies are. You, you go, okay, there's a problem. I'm going to solve it. And uh, one of our co-founders, Ben Gantz, was a, a child sexual uh, uh, abuse investigator for the UK government. And what he was finding was 70 to 80% of his time was simply sorting through confiscated materials from child predators terabytes of data trying to figure out what is legal what is illegal what can we prosecute and 10 20 to 30 percent of his time was done investigating humans are really good at investigating we're not really good at sorting through mass amounts of data and so he thought there has to be a better way and like a lot of you know technologies including the internet you know the uh 
what he realized is that there was a uh, the UK government had had some foresight that we could build industry off of, and they had they had put together a database called CADE, uh, Child Abuse Image Database, back in 2013, and he uh, connected with our our other co-founder Scott Page uh, to uh, go. Can we use AI to better sort through these terabytes of data? of confiscated materials so to tip the scales in favor of law enforcement in this one limited instance. Um, and so they set about to um, use AI and deep neural networks back in uh, 2015 in an attempt to uh, really even understand if it could be done. You know, computer vision and AI is, is really powerful. But it's also problematic. Uh, you know, the, the conversations around facial recognition where, you know, it's been fed millions and millions, hundreds of millions of faces, and it still makes mistakes, particularly for people of color. And so, you know, that's a nuance that it's not great at. It's it's effective, but not perfect. Uh, and it's really good at like, you know, that's a dog, that's a horse, that's a pig you know, separating big things. We were asking it to go, okay, we want to understand uh, the, re you know, inference of behavior by body position, by relative body size, by if someone's touching or not, by if various body parts are exposed or not. Um, fairly complex things that even humans sometimes struggle with. Um, and so when we uh, went through and we had data that was illegal to hold. CSAM is illegal for anyone to actually have on their servers. And so they drag their kit into a Faraday cage at the home office in the UK, literally did all the training there, and they couldn't even look at the images. They had a the law enforcement officer actually be driving back to back in the in the in the lab to to fine tune uh, our algorithm. And so, the eureka sorry, moment so, was that we could actually do it. We could actually find, because the current technology that's yeah. out there right now is a hashing technology. So it's like a fingerprint. Think of when something is found and identified as CSAM. So that's what um, uh, is the backbone of a lot of Ashton Kutcher is actually uh, the really powerful company, Thorn. They've done amazing work in this space. A lot of their technology is built on hashing. So it's essentially a fingerprint of known images. But that's probably too, too, you know, an estimate. You know, how do you estimate how much you don't know? But the estimates are about 2 to 8% of all CSAM on the internet is previously known. A lot of it's being generated every day. And so we had to solve that gap of going from being able to identify 8% to identifying 99 plus. And, um, and you had to do that with computer vision and pattern recognition. And so that's what we've got set about to do. And not only that, because we all sit with a 4k camera sitting in our pocket, uh, the element of the abuse has moved from images to video. And so we had to build a video classifier for the first time ever. And so, uh, all of a sudden we tip the scales. And so what you're looking at is, uh, uh, you know, as it got deployed across, uh, across uh, law enforcement, a dramatic decrease in the amount of time just sorting through confiscated materials and a dramatic increase in time to investigate. And that's what technology should do. It should do what it does well, which is sort through large masses of data to find, um, you know, anomalous elements. And then, allow humans to do the really complex elements of stitching that together and actually saving kids. Um, so once we developed that for law enforcement, we realized the, the power that that could bring to uh, content uh, moderation on a broader scale. And so uh, moving from law enforcement that not only is uh, not only is outmatched technologically, but also outmatched budget wise um, when there's a new dollar going into law enforcement, largely it goes to officers to get more people um, there's a there's a technological deficit, and so um, not a great market for a for profit company, but it's definitely something that as we move forward, we're going to find ways to to do that economically for law enforcement. But uh, we realized we could go upstream, like any innovation. You go well, where's a better place to do this? Let's go upstream and go to the actual uh, providers of a lot of the infrastructure and take at least not the low hanging fruit. Um, out of the system and make it harder for people to even get into this lifestyle. Because th that's typically when you look at 
one of our advisors is a literally a child sexual abuse epidemiologist, and they really treat it like uh, uh, infectious disease. And one of the ways that happens is, you know, you're abused as a child. Um, you're, you don't process that information, that, that trauma well. Um, that's a very hard thing to process. Even if you're getting support, it's hard. And often the way it comes out is you actually consume this content for years trying to, you know, and, and it, your brain is just trying to deal with that trauma. Well, it normalizes that behavior and then leads to action. And so if we can get 20%, 40%, 50% of people less likely to run into that content, or if they're going to search for it, they have to, they have to go through extraordinary measures to go to the dark web or somewhere a little less public than a Facebook group or a WhatsApp, WhatsApp chat group. Um, that becomes something that we can literally break the cycle of violence. Um, and so, you know, when you look at systemic change, you have to find those choke points and big tech is one of them. So we're bringing that forward. And, and, you know, luckily, you know, I think there are, the eyes are open in, in uh, Silicon Valley and uh, other major technology platforms around the world that no longer can they just kind of ignore this as a, as um, their responsibility. And they've bulked up their content moderation and trust and safety operations across the board. And so, you know, they, they are going to need tools and we can help them. We're helping them do that. So there you go. Uh, Chris, that, that was a very long, uh, long way yeah. to go. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, um, absolutely. The whole point of this long form is, uh, you know, just be able to get you speak your mind out. I, I, yeah. I love rants here. And uh, the reason I like this one is like, you know, you give a few t tidbits there. This idea that, um, that uh, it's a cycle of abuse, right? Like uh, those mm -hmm. who, uh, those, uh, uh, those who are hurt people, hurt people, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, that, that kind of saying where it's like uh, people who have, uh, you know, are abused, uh, kind of continue the cycle of abuse and breaking the chain is, uh, is breaking that. So, you know, there's this idea of like, you know, criminalizing behavior, regardless of what you've been through, like um, uh, you're responsible for your action. So mm -hmm. uh, the idea that, yeah, just because you're, you'd have done this, you're not off, you know, you don't get, uh, you don't get specially treatments or uh, you're just punished just harshly. Mm -hmm. Um you know, others have come out and say that's not fair because, you know, they're continuing uh, like, you know, uh, a cycle. It's something that's been done to them. They've been put down this path. You know, it's beyond them. You know, where do we where do you stand like morally on that? Like on, on that question, because, you know, you kind of you kind of came, you know, when you went to the, uh, you mentioned this idea that um, you know it's a, it's a cycle, right? So mm -hmm. what do we do to break the cycle? Is it punishment or is it uh, understanding? I think it's both. Uh, I, I, I think society without um, rules is uh, degrades. And so I do think that, uh, and, and, you know, if you look at it back through, th this is one of the longest standing um, social and legal norms that uh, abuse of a child is abhorrent. And so, I, we, you know, we obviously believe that anyone who is actively doing that needs to be punished to the full extent of the law. That said, um, Anybody doing that or, or on the verge of doing that needs as much support as possible. And so if we can remove that, uh, remove that, the temptation to get into that lifestyle. I mean, the, the internet is, we're not, our, our brains aren't wired for how the internet is currently organized. You know, one of the things we look at is social reinforcement to our behaviors. And so if you're walking down the street and you see everybody um, throwing garbage down, you're more likely to throw garbage down. And, uh, and so what happens in, in some of these forums, uh, that are on a lot of very, you know, broad, very public, uh, uh, websites is people are on that, you know, somebody comes onto that forum and they find a community of hundreds, thousands of people, and it normalizes that. Um, abhorrent behavior in a way that it just can't happen. And, you know, you see this in, uh, in political radicalization and religious radicalization that you get into a like with a like-minded group of people and you're in your bubble and all of a sudden what in a normal, you know, geographically organized world would be absolutely outside the norm becomes the norm. And so we want to break that 
we're literally targeting that one part of the process to to break that that circuit. Now that said, if they've tipped over into behavior and they're abusing children, we also want to get that those kids out of those situations ASAP and get them the support. And so that's where um, our technology being able to find new elements is really critical because that can means we'll be able to find things on live streams. We'll be able to find things that were created yesterday versus waiting years to find that image. And as a result, law enforcement can have an urgency to actually find that kid and get them out of that um, dangerous situation and get them the support they need to break the cycle at that point. Um, once you break into, once you go into actually abusing a child, I have no problem with um, the legal punishments we have. Obviously, we'd like it to be restorative justice. Um, but um, I think that, you know, in a, in a battle of, of, uh, of needs, we have to put the needs of the children over the needs of the, of the, of the abuser that is, however it got to that point in their life, um, we need to, we need to, I, I think, I do think we need to tip the scales towards the children. Hmm. You know, I mean, absolutely. But, um, you know, there's been a currently uh, a new line of rhetoric that uh, has been really interesting, but like kind of appalling at the same time, um, you know, parts of the LGBT community, uh, other, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, it's certain parts have argued that, you know, this, uh, especially in, in the gay community, that older and younger relationships are not just common, but like a, a particular part of it. Right. And argued that that uh, that is also itself like it, is, it needs to be respected and that, um, you know, these age barriers should not exist within those communities, within their, their communities. And but it, it still comes back to the idea of consent and uh, operating mm -hmm. versus non-consent. There's still like this range uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, the child trafficking that you're talking about. Right. Yeah. So there are uh, I think this this weird argument being made right now about uh, about age and, and the, the ideas about it. And then, and they, you know, they keep uh, referencing like different different. Uh, Different societies where, uh, you know, age is being uh, as as a, as a construct that we as we know it is new, and that this is you know uh, this is actually the the norm of how things should be, and this is the reverse logic that's being deployed as well. But coming back to the idea of consent and non-consent, I think that that itself is where everyone kind of relies on the idea when like it's it's a, a criminal action or it's 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 against the will of things, right? What do you think is like the uh, like the, the biggest uh, driver here, like, like, is it uh, like uh, poverty that like dry, like, you know, that, uh, that facilitates this kind of things um, to occur? Is it like socioeconomic balance where like, um, like the, the rich, the balance between the rich and the rich halves are like, are like the socioeconomic wides are wide and like, uh, you know, capital is used as an abusive way. Um, do you think there's any kind of particular like widespread systematic systematic changes that uh, you would I, I do like to see that uh, would 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 change how uh, like almost like the behavior of people you know like do you do you see systems wide change that needs to occur? Uh, yes, and I, and I actually think tying the two thoughts together that you have right there um, is really critical, and I think. You know, the, the conversations, the, the, frankly, there's been conversations even within um, heterosexual um, normative people talking about age being a, a different thing. But I think that what we've done largely is in, and, and I'll, I'll be honest, I'm speaking more from a Western um, perspective. Uh, we've conflated um, sexual expression and power. And that is what often leads to abuse. And um, it's what drives rape. It's what drives non-consensual abuse of children. It's a imbalanced power, uh, power dynamic, um, forcing one's will on the other. And I don't think there's any way um, that a child can ever consent to this. Definitely not prepubescent. That's kind of a global standard if you look at global law enforcement is um, prepubescent, postpubescent, but as our food stock has changed and as we've kind of changed nutrition, that age is getting younger and younger. And if you're going to tell me that a a 12 year old understands the full um, the full elements of entering a sexual relationship with a 30 year old, I, I, I just I'll, I'll always disagree with you. Um, and so I think you can quibble over is 18 the right number, is 17 the right number. You can quibble over 
like borderline elements, but it's a physiological fact that our brains aren't fully developed until we're 25. And we make a lot of dumb mistakes. I'm, I'm, I made a lot of dumb mistakes when I was young. Um, what we can't, what we need to do as a society is have norms in place and laws and the rule of law to make sure that those that can't make um, the right decisions in this situation shouldn't, you know, we, we limit driving, we limit um, alcohol consumption, we limit um, weapon possession, we, we limit a lot of things. And I think limiting uh, a, a broken power dynamic in a sexual relationship uh, of an adult and a child is really critical. And so I think that that's really the systemic element that we need to address and, and kind of educate, particularly men, about how um, we need to separate sexual expression genuine sexual expression and power. And that, um, that, that power dynamic transcends, uh, uh, in groups or out groups or, you know, um, alternative uh, lifestyles or whatever, um, that power dynamic, there has to be an equality there on that power dynamic, particularly in a sexual relationship that, um, is critical. And I think, so I, I think there's a bit of an education that we need to have. And like I said, it's largely, um, in my mind to men, but I hope that answers your question, but it's a, it's a deep one. Um, and th th there are other systemic yeah. issues that we need to, we need to address, but you know, that's at, at its core. We need, you know, we need to help people unpack the difference between power and um, consent. Yeah. In, in Toronto in uh, 2017, there was a, there's a, we call it the van attack. It's like a known event uh, where uh, a, a, a driver just literally plowed through the street, plowed down um, uh, mostly women, but uh, pedestrian traffic in the name of a group called uh, incels. And um, it was, it, it really shone light to this huge uh, growing community of online people of, of men who feel ostracized because they can't, um, uh, you know, they can't find a partner or they can't get laid or they can't, uh, you know, uh, for whatever reason, social anxiety, uh, they can't connect with, uh, with the opposite sex. And, you know, and as uh, abhorrent as this uh, this portion of the internet can become, it also speaks to a particular pain that mm -hmm. I, I think that is really interesting, is that uh, these these men uh, are generally coming together and finding these groups where they can like almost relate, but they create this almost like fictionalized uh, reality mm -hmm. where they're seen like they're the oppressed, they're the victims, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, you know they're they're guaranteed things, and. Underneath it all, I think it, it, they actually bring up some really, really interesting points, right? That, that, that when you talk about the power dynamic and sex and things like that, uh, they say in a, in a, there's a one argument uh, I remember uh, somebody summarized and talking about was that um, in a free and open society where men and women had the rights to choose, 80% of the women will follow a power law and go for 20% of the men, right? And the 80% of men will have to fight over the remaining 20. It's like you're settling. And the idea is that uh, it, that is actually a um, not the way things are supposed to be as us as a species. For a vast majority of the species, like uh, we had um, um, like uh, war <laughs> essentially as a way to equalize that measure. Mm -hmm. You know, allowing the the lesser men or the ones who can't, uh, you know, the, the remaining eighty percent to actually win by conquest to have uh, to have virtue, right? And the argument for the, these incels were saying, like, based off of that kind of state of being, the way that should be is that um, wives should be guaranteed in almost like a very like a backward, like a very um, a patriarchal driven society. It's mm -hmm. like it should be a resource that should be distributed among men to make this mm -hmm. equal. Just like you would think about capital as like, you know, a socialist would be a capitalist, like you had to distribute wealth and resource. They think about, uh, you know, uh, like women or wives or like uh, or partners as like a resource that right. needs to be distributed and and I think that uh, that that aims for something that uh, that's there, right? It's that we think of people as uh, as uh, things that we, uh, almost like objects we need made and traded. The otherness of it, it comes into effect. Like how much of it is learned and ingrained, and how much is it is uh, you know comes uh, comes uh, naturally to us uh, to genetic. Like I think that's uh, that's an interesting thing to think about because. For large sets of societies to kind of uh, like different different um, uh, people to kind of uh, sir, uh, inter like to uh, to cooperate, that actually requires a level of thinking and a level of processes and, and a level of uh, co like a level of um, 
I guess, uh, communication and understanding that needs to cross a lot of barriers, right? And these are like leftover thoughts and leftover ideals of a, of a bygone time fighting to like remain relevant. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least that's what I see of it. You know, there's, there's new ways of establishing relying society and there's these older ways that have worked and therefore kind of, soci- kind of survived in like collective consciousness. And they're like battling it out to try and see who's winning. Um, you know, who is winning? What do you think? Like, do you think there's an ever never ending battle? Like, you know, like battling cocaine or drugs, like the drug war was like a fight that was never ending because you're going after innate urge of, of, of society, right? Do you think this is going to be an ever ending struggle or is there ever like a battleground that's going to be won? Like a line that's been crossed? I, I think it's the it's the role of society to to regulate uh, some of those behaviors uh, in, uh, you know, in the what, what we said that early history was um, brutal, brut- uh, br- brutish and short. Um, at, I mean, mm-hmm. it was largely because the stronger won. And, you know, uh, if you were bigger and you could do you, you forced your will on people. And if you look at the as we interconnect as a as a culture and as a society, uh, we've continually regulated that kind of violence, both on a nation state and on a on a, you know, it, it, it was not abnormal in, you know, uh, you know, in uh, the, you know, 3000 years ago for one tribe to attack the other tribe for resources. That is now not happening. We do not have one city attacking another city for resources. And um, and so if you look at that's what society does is it regulates inter, interpersonal relationships. I do think the incel movement is an interesting mal, uh, mal expression of that long element of switching from physical power to intellectual power. Um, that particularly is striking males and, and, and I think with the incel movement, you also have, um, racial politics coming in there as well. It's largely white males that are feeling, um, threatened by the pluralism of society. And so the loss of, the loss of power or perceived power, um, is often, is often that it comes out in very, destructive ways sometimes. And so are there things that we need to do to kind of support them through that evolution? Absolutely. Is that the right expression of it? Absolutely not. Um, but I do think, you know, we, we are in a really difficult point in the evolution of society because we are, we've evolved from pure power dynamics based on geography to near um, uh, intellectual organization around ideas. And we're in the middle of that transformation right now. And uh, as a result, we need a new set of societal guidelines to not only control bad behavior, but also to empower people that are, quote unquote, losing power. Sometimes it just means that they're on an equal footing of other people that haven't been in power. You know, sometimes it's sometimes when Mm -hmm. you see privilege disappear, that's when you feel most, uh, most threatened. And I think um, you see that in uh, US politics, you see that in the intel movement thing. As a as a as a white male, you could have a better job and a bigger this, and you are in the top twenty percent just by default. So um, when you lose that privilege, that feels like you're being persecuted. When all it is is you're on a you're actually on a more level playing field. But you know, even the concept of a currency, mm-hmm. you know, we we talk a lot about crypto right now, but currency is a is an intellectual construct. Like how much money the the bank doesn't have money in my bank account they have a number on a spreadsheet that we all agree is that I have. Um, and so, you know, I think the minute that, you know, an intellectual concept like money came into it, that started that, that switch. And so, but the internet has absolutely accelerated it. And now we're starting to organize around ideas. And, and so now we need to figure out how do we regulate, uh, regulate some of that interaction in a way that we're not creating um, groups that are damaging to to the broader society or to uh, people with less power in society, and I think that that's really critical. And and I don't have all the answers. 
Um, but um, I think we're in a very mm. interesting inflection point. Sometimes when you're in the middle of history, you have no idea. Um, I've, I've been recently doing some research into like the history of television and how it's impacted society. And they're like, oh, here's the remote control. I'm like, the remote control means nothing. We're not talking about the impact mm. of mass culture and mass society as well because we're in the middle of it. It's hard to, there's no, there, there's, it's hard to do, it's hard to discern history when you're in the middle of it. Yeah, and that's my working theory, um, at least. So, let's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so just flipping back to your, uh, like you know, founders hat, and yeah. looking at this from like a uh, like a founders problem, like a, like a uh, you know, and, and building it. You spoke of the challenges of working with this because uh, for you to train your algorithm, you can't even see the material. Mm-hmm. You, you know, a human can't be involved. Uh, it's a blind training test, and like you need, uh, you know, resources like from uh, the police department to uh, to work with and mm-hmm. to authorize this thing, kind of things and move forward. You know, um, you know, can you can you walk us through the process uh, that a little further? Like, how is it te- your technology come forward, and how is it a little different from what's uh, what's uh, existing in the field? Absolutely. Well, you know, most of you know, there's been a lot of talk of AI and uh, AI and how it's going to change the world and. I think the main fundamental problem with most AI applications is bad data. Um, it's either been scraped relatively crudely off the internet in a way that without consent. So, you know, you, um, like think of every, you know, uh, clear, clear view, the, the facial recognition company just went and scraped all of Facebook. That's not legal. That's not appropriate, but they just went and did that. Um, and so there's, there's literally, um, ethical approaches to getting that information. And so working with working with the government in this situation was one way for us to do that. And particularly knowing that potentially something that we do has may have an impact on the legal system. But also how well is that data curated and controlled? And so in this case, we had a data set that uh, is requires three different um, law enforcement officers to agree that it is what it is that are trained on in, in this um, area of crime. And so, you know, I'm here talking about this product, but it's built on the back of really heroic work by law enforcement that had to go through and do that. And then now we have millions of images. Now, if we can now take that work and turn this into uh, turn it into our classifier that allows us to actually do this without that many people touching it, um, you know, the, what we can do is leverage that amazing work of law enforcement more broadly. But so it really started with this gold standard data set that we didn't do. Um, and but we we partnered with um, the UK government because they wanted to support their investigators. Um, and then we're just taking the best in class of computer vision, um, largely, you know, learned in, you know, developed through defense and um, public safety work and uh, et cetera. Um, to uh, to discern what it is, and so then we're do- all, all we're doing is when when uh, you know uh, we work with someone, you either have your data flow come through our classifier, and we give you a you know it's a zero percent chance that that's CSAM, or that's a forty two percent chance, and depending on what those confidence levels are, then we're routing it to the appropriate parts of their organization. So if it's a ninety nine percent chance, or you know ninety nine point nine, maybe they are comfortable just going, okay, we're going to take that off our platform or never let it on our platform, and uh, and investigate that user, um, or. Uh, if it's a 42%, it, it should go to another human being to look at and make a, make a decisions because humans do a lot better in, uh, in ambiguous situations to understand what to do. And so, uh, uh, I think AI is only as good as its data and it's only as good as its governance. And so that's, that's a critical part of our product is that we, we solve the data problem for people. Um, and we're helping them with the governance problem. And so that, you know, long-term that's, you know, like we, we, boy, we've gone from 10,000 feet to, to 20 feet pretty quickly, but you know, in, in the end, um, we're trying to solve that one problem. And now, um, and largely cause it's the hardest problem for a lot of these companies to deal with is CSAM. It's, it's the clearest case of content that needs to get pulled off. Political speech is very hard. Like what is dissent and what is, um, the government quelling, um, um, legitimate political voices. That's a really hard one. That's a hard one for automation. And it's a hard one for these platforms. It's really black and white with the abuse of children. And so let's start there and then let's move 
with very um, with deliberation and ethical the right ethical frameworks to move to more things that we have consensus as a society shouldn't be there. So that could be cyberbullying. That could be uh, that could be blackmail. That could be um, uh, revenge porn. There are things that we as a society go, yeah, that's not good. Um, and so, but we wanted to start at the absolute base of what 99% of the world agrees with and then build from there. And, you know, as we, as we grow as a company, our, our vision is to continue to build tools that make it more hospitable for more people online. Yeah. You know, you speak of about uh, Clearview AI, and uh, they they were recently in the news because uh, the Privacy Commissioner in Canada um, said um, said that uh, the RCMP cannot be using them to um, it's it's immoral for them Good. to use them to uh, in criminal activities because just because uh, just, you know a a a a, um, a, um, a policing division cannot use a a, a system that has obtained uh, its ability through like you know it, it, it through criminal means mm-hmm. and and uh, it, but it points to like another aspect that uh, exists right like it's yeah there now we have the ability to like analyze these things and i think that's that's really good because you're removing the human layer you know you're not mm-hmm. putting a human person to have to view these images and and consume that you know whether uh you know they go they go they go you know they go crazy themselves consuming this or you know somebody who might actually enjoy those images might end up being placed in those kind of jobs. Right. You know, removing the human element just kind of removes that kind of risk, right? right? But the secondary aspect is how do we get preventive? Because there was this uh, uh, case that happened, you know, when TikTok was you know being removed from uh, the App Store, like when the Trump government was talking about it, there was a particular story that came out. But how uh, TikTok was used for sub uh, for uh, subterfuge of, um, of uh, for criminal activity. Um, there was somebody who's uh, there's a criminal like organization that was monitoring TikTok activity, and used uh, found somebody that worked in like a very uh, a very key position in a city um, that was viewing uh, TikToks of underage uh, underage uh, girls on a lot of them, right? And they caught that pattern. And then they blackmailed them using that pattern in order to access some key city infrastructure, and then use that to do a ransomware attack. Wow! And that came to uh, came into light that wait, criminals are using algorithms to to uh, to, 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 to to target behavior. You know mm-hmm. what's that happening in the law enforcement side? So are we creating like uh, profiles of people based off of their algorithms? Are we are, are as law enforcement in, uh, taking that preemptive measure? And is are citizens meant to feel safe about that because someone's doing it and you know it's not necessarily used for like positive means it's it's being utilized uh negatively almost for for uh for like spy versus spy kind of stuff right yeah. in um in, in the intelligence in the intelligence world or in this in this uh cybersecurity cyber attack kind of world right how can we yeah, utilize well, yeah. uh to in a preventive measure yeah well Sorry, it's, you, again there's a lot there uh what one is, um, at least in the United States, uh, there have been attempts to actually build some of those profiles that have been um, stopped by the courts. It's actually a violation of the Fourth Amendment in the United States of illegal se- search and seizure. Um, it's one of the reasons why we can't, we actually can't or won't use uh, uh, CSAM databases that are collected by the U.S. government. Because uh, technically that would be a government in the U.S. that would violate the Constitution of the United States. Um, Clearview is an interesting case because I think not only is it showing kind of um, a bad actor, but it shows the asymmetric power of technology. Uh, Because Mm. uh, Microsoft, Amazon, uh, I'm trying to think of all the major players. All these players had facial recognition systems that they had built. And they decided in about 2018 not to do it. They went, this is this is problematic. We're going to get out of this business, and this is inappropriate. And back in the day, having major, major technology companies step out of a business was more than enough to kill that. that. Clearview stepped in with 10 programmers and went and did this and, now, and took over the entire market. Um, scale is something you can do with technology that you could never do 
uh, in the past. And so it's interesting. It, it's, it's, it's put a strain on the current uh, regulatory system. Cause I think we, we've often just relied on the fact that it was, it's just too hard to do. Well, it's not too hard to do some of these things. And so now you're seeing kind of post ex facto, um, whether that's the RCMP, um, you know, the, it's a violation of GDPR in the UK. It's a violation of CCPA in California, but you're still seeing Clearview used across the board, like in many, many uh, police uh, law enforcement agencies around the world. It's a problem. And, and so we don't have those norms and standards built. We need to, I think we need to have a, not a, a knee jerk reaction to it, um, but we need to have a realistic reaction. It's something we think about a lot at Krunam is the, is the inherent tension between privacy and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, e equality and, and, um, and, um, scanning, you know, and because in a, in a perfectly private internet, these bad actors get away with everything and that's not good for society. So, but if everything is all out in the public, then you have, um, or everything is viewed by the government, you have a problematic element. Like look at the, look at some of the surveillance state issues that have come out on China or fill in the blank. Um, and so I think that that's a coming, a coming uh, conversation that, you know, I know we're working to kind of help facilitate is to have a legitimate conversation about how do we balance privacy and equality online? Um, because otherwise we're going to just lock in power dynamics of the loudest, the most vicious, um, and the internet will be a brutish place, um, brutish, nasty, and short uh, uh, place to live. Um, and we need to we need to build structures in place that are are not baby with the bathwater out or um, completely visible because there are parts that should be private um, and there are parts that shouldn't. And we need to find that right balance. And we don't know. We're not there yet. We're at the early days. And so, you know, um, it's it's and, and, you know, that's one of the reasons as a founder, I was excited because at the beginning of a process is when there's a real opportunity. Um, there's an opportunity to uh, fulfill needs. There's an opportunity to drive the the conversation, um, and there's an opportunity to uh, to uh, really drive uh, positive goals long term. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons why we're a public benefit corporation. We are not just driven by profit. We're also driven by uh, uh, the the charge of a positive social impact, um, particularly in this stage in the space space of child sexual abuse. Um, on uh, how we use technology and moving forward. Um, and so we built that tension into our business because we knew that, you know, the easiest way to make a buck might not be the most uh, legitimate and ethical way to make a buck. And so um, I think that's a critical element moving forward as we kind of delve with the fact that we're rebuilding societal connections uh, through private companies. It's never been done before. It's a really weird thing that we're walking into. Um, and, uh, so, you know, uh, uh, you know, we're, we definitely wanted to get our, uh, our seat at the table and try to, try to push the, the, uh, conversation towards justice. Chris, this isn't a, this isn't a fascinating line of conversation, you know, not one that uh, we get to have a lot. We've had cybersecurity firms on here that talked about this from a, a cybersecurity kind of standpoint, by the technology standpoint, but we really had like a, like a morals and ethics kind of, a kind of conversation here today. And, uh, I really enjoyed that. Really appreciated your time. Um, you know, I, I hope to have you back on again, uh, so we can dive deeper into this and also yep. get some updates on your product and how that's been performing. Uh, thank you again for your time. Uh, this has been really great. Uh, talk about a deep conversation. I appreciate it. And uh, uh, I'd love to be back. So thank you so much, Ravi. Perfect. And uh, for everyone who tuned in, thanks for joining us.